So how are you doing? It's quite a transition, isn't it? And if you'd gone through, especially the last few days, thinking, I'm not that concentrated, I'm really not that concentrated. You probably were, weren't you? Or at least more than you are right now, anyway. Or more, than, more perhaps than you thought you were. But sometimes as we're in this process, it's really hard to get a sense of the deepening that's happened. And it's not until we get into that uh, challenging situation of actually talking again to people that we realize how quiet the mind has gotten. And a, a, a big part of deepening in our practice, learning how to do retreats, is learning how to let go of retreats, just let go of that sense of seclusion and actually welcome this next phase of, of your practice. The Buddha talked about four kinds of students or four modes of progress. So see if you can find yourself in in this list, this depiction. He talked about progress or students that go fast with not much pain, with no pain, who go fast but with a lot of pain, who go slow with no pain, or who go slow with a lot of pain. (laughs) So which, which category do you think you're in? Most of us think we're four. Maybe sometimes it eases a little and we're in the third category, but this is actually a slow practice. It's a slow process. And I know I certainly considered myself in that last category. Huge amount of judgment of myself, and of course that judgment would then get directed to my practice. You know, why am I having more insight? Why am I having the catharsis? I'd see all these other people rolling around with this emotional releases and all of this kind of stuff, and I'm like, you know, not happening. And so a lot of judgment about myself, and, and really very harsh and even cruel at times in the way I would talk to myself. And it wasn't until I started doing longer retreats, and particularly doing metta and concentration, that that started to shift a little. I started to really feel the impact, the power of doing these kinds of practices. And it really brought a lot of faith. It was just amazing to feel that I was touching into this lineage in a way that was so powerful and so profound. I really felt like a daughter of the Buddha. It was like I'd been given an instruction manual that had been written 2,500 years ago. And if I followed this instruction manual these results would happen in the same way they'd obviously done 2,500 years ago and for millions of people ever since. So it really brought a, a sense of confidence both in the Dhamma, in the teachings, but also in my capacity, you know, that I've been so judgmental about, but my capacity to actually train the mind, to incline the mind, to incline the mind certainly towards metta, and have more of a foundation, a sense of well-wishing and kindness towards myself and others, but also in the deepening of uh, concentration. Really, it was very impactful to learn that I could train the mind, and that my senses, and a number of you have said things like this, that this kind of practice really puts grooves in the mind. You know, how that happens, I guess it's neural pathways or whatever, but it really does sink in, in a way, Uh, that's quite powerful and quite profound. And that the more we do this practice, the deeper that kind of connection gets. And as we come back again and again, find that way in more easily every time because we've just learnt the territory 
we know how to navigate. So it's really so important to, to feel that benefit. I've said a number of times that we're not here learning to be good breathers. You all know how to breathe. That's not what we're here for. But we're not even here to get certain experiences. We're not even here necessarily to get concentrated, though that may all happen. What we're doing here is learning how to train the mind. That's the most important thing. And to realize that it is trainable. That this mind, like the Buddha's mind and like all of these people since who've practiced in this way, the mind is trainable. If we are clear enough about our practice and and, uh, persistent enough in this gentle way we've been talking about, this mind is trainable. But as I said, it's not necessarily a slow or easy path. It's not like you know, training a puppy and you've got six weeks and boom, you know, the puppy's trained or whatever. This is a lifetime process. And we really have to surrender to that, that this is just necessarily the way it goes. It goes perhaps slowly but deeply in that way because we integrate in a way. It's not trying to force experience. These days you can tell that meditation is getting more in the mainstream because there's more and more cartoons about it. And one of uh, my favorite ones is, and they're often depicted in, you can tell it's a zendo because they're these road monks and it's very severe, you know, just a platform and a wall. And in this particular cartoon, there are two monks kind of leaning towards each other. And you can tell the younger one has asked a question and the older one is kind of whispering out the side of his mouth, nothing happens next, this is it. So I don't know if that was a little bit your experience, this, this retreat, waiting, you know. <laughs> yes, breath, yes, you know. But this is it, you know, this is it. This, this practice is very simple. And whatever level of concentration or calm you have developed this week, the bad news is, unfortunately, you can't take that with you. It's a product of causes and conditions. And as the conditions change, as they have already done today, that will begin to dissipate. Perhaps you feel it has to some degree already. So it's not about holding on to that. We can't. But it is about recognizing the training that you've had and the training that you've learned for yourself. That you can take with you. That knowledge, that wisdom, that kind of trust or faith, whatever connected for you, that you can actually bring back to your life and apply it in your practice and certainly in other areas of your life. And if I had to choose for you, a random you, uh, between some ecstatic experience, pity or whatever, and knowing this kind of training, I would choose the training because that's more valuable. And so, you know, if you're judging your practice, please don't because I think you've all, in this retreat, learned some degree of collecting and unifying the mind, learned how to include, to incline to this state of ease or well-being. You've all had a taste of that. And then, as we've done in the last few days, you've also learned what it's like to open up a little, to actually include more of your experience, all of the six sense doors. As we've pointed to before, and a number of you have even said this in interviews, many people think that being with the breath is vipassana meditation. 
or you know if they're open at all it's like you're with a breath and there's this little diversion out but you know the main thing is come back to the breath come back to the breath and I can understand why you might have felt that or you know believe that because it often gets said in the meditation hall some instruction like that but it's really not the breadth of our practice and in this retreat through the development of the samatha practice and then as we've done the opening up I really hope you've gotten a sense of that of what it's like to sustain the awareness on the breath to really have that sense of being in the in the breath but not clinging to it, as we've said a few times, not with a sense of tightness, but this, this intimacy with the breath, this, this prioritizing of the breath. But then also what it's like to let go of the breath, to open up. And learning to do that, I think, is one of the great gifts of this retreat, learning to do that for yourself and knowing that there can be this beautiful dance that can happen between these two sort of ends of a spectrum of practices and I certainly can relate to how you might have been feeling in, in these last days or so. I think I've said that I did a number of years where most of my practice was concentration practice, either metta or anapanasati. And I went to one retreat where, um, after I'd done a number of concentration retreats, I just had this intention that I would, it was a six-week retreat, I would do two weeks of anapana for concentration, and then I would move to vipassana. So I did that, you know, I'd done a few retreats before, so kind of knew how to unfold the practice, and it deepened, and then the day came that I said I would let go, and it's like, do I have to? <laughs> you, know, you know, it was only an internal commitment that I'd made to myself, but, you know, we've said again and again, the point of this practice isn't just to have pleasant states of mind, it's to turn it towards insight, towards uh, opening the mind to, to everything, to reality. But there was a real resistance. I, I felt like I'd been sheltered in this cozy, warm hut, and outside a storm was raging, and I was having to, you know, open the door and kind of peer out. And, uh, you know, or, or sometimes what it's like when it's a really warm day and you're at the beach and you're hot, but you, you want to go swimming, but the water seems so cold in comparison to just the softness of the sun and the warmth. So I really had this resistance, but... I had the determination and I followed through. You know, I sort of had a sitting where I said, just like we had a sitting for you, where I make this transition. And I kind of had this expectation that I would open up in this way and it would be like, as I said, you know, being pounded by a storm, that I would just be assaulted by all of these changing sensations and the complexity and confusion. So I was kind of holding my breath a little, you know, what's this going to be like? But I just very gently opened up. And lo and behold, my expectations were not what happened. You know, and how often is that the case? We have some idea of, you know, I know how this is going to be, and so we have a whole agenda or a plan or a strategy, and it's not that way. I mean, that's a whole other talk about projections and perceptions, but it wasn't that way. What I actually found, and, you know, I don't mean to talk in any aggrandizing way, but I'd done the training of concentration, and so the mind was quite light, and it was very receptive, but there was a, a calm there. And it was actually quite beautiful to let go of the breath and move into this flow of changing experiences that were actually quite subtle and really inviting. And it was 
turned out to be a very powerful practice of exploring the seven factors of awakening, the energizing and calming factors, because the mind was calm enough to actually see them at play, see them at work. So it was actually wonderful to make that transition. And again, a few of you have said that in the times when you've opened up, you've seen so clearly the nature of the body or arising sensations or the, the, the being able to be with the thinking mind. This is what can happen when the mind has been uh, collected and, and really brought to this state of clarity. It can actually see more clearly. It isn't so disturbed by these changing experiences. And hopefully you've seen through this collecting and unifying that it's not a tight or narrow thing. It's not a rigid holding on. But actually, at times especially, times it can get very refined, very still and simple, but at other times very spacious, very inclusive. And you know what are the supports for that, how to develop that for yourself. So this has all been part of the training. And so we take this mind, as we've talked about the last couple of nights, that's been trained in this way, that we've learned how to do, and we turn it to changing experience. And again, Andrea and Temple have both talked about this a little, that you know, to what we notice is impermanence, that everything is arising and passing, and that if we hold on, there's suffering, and there's nothing solid there. Often when we have these uh, insights, or we see that, it's very challenging for us. We can get kind of rocked by that. But the mind that has some stability is actually able to stay with that, to deepen into that insight. Christina Feldman says that the insight goes more deeply into a concentrated mind. It's more receptive. It's, it's more open to seeing clearly in that way. So we learn how to be steadier with these changing experiences. We actually can be there to learn from them. We ha- perhaps have more skill to work with pain, what it's like to perhaps keep it in the background or to soften with relaxation, but also then the steadiness of mind that just turns to it and says, you know, what's actually happening here? Can I open to this? And we learn how to work more skillfully with the emotions, again, not perhaps quite so lost in them. There's that stability of mind that at moments we can have, just knowing, oh, this is anger or fear or judgment or loneliness, or sadness, or joy. And it really, of course, is a great support in working with the most important foundation of mindfulness, which is awareness of mind, awareness of thoughts. And to be able to have a steady enough mind to see a thought arise, perhaps persist, and then pass away, to see that a thought is impermanent, like any other experience we have, that thoughts don't need to run the show, it takes a fairly stable mind to see that. So this is, again, uh, one of the benefits of calming the mind in this way. It can be with these more subtle experiences and start to understand them in this deeper way. So we can use this kind of practice to create a foundation for any kind of practice that we're going to do. As we learn this kind of training, any kind of meditation needs some degree of concentration. You know, whether we're just doing regular Vipassana, again, we use these terms a little sloppily sometimes, but you know, where we're more open to changing experiences, sounds and touch and sensations, etc. 
we need to be somewhat concentrated to be able to stay with those changing experiences. And to see that we can create this beautiful flow between periods of collecting and secluding the mind and then opening. It doesn't have to be kind of chunks, you know, 10 days of this and two days of that, but even on any retreat, just to have a trust or an understanding of when we really need to seclude the mind and get some sense of gathering the resources and when we can open up and how to really open up. So there's this availability for every aspect of our experience. And so retreat can come to be this quite lovely intuitive flow between these kinds of practices. And the jhanic factors that we've spoken about are also great resources for us. You know, for, for many of you, it was the first time perhaps hearing about them, but perhaps you recognize them from your previous practice. These are factors that get developed whatever kind of meditation practice that we're doing. But to actually recognize them, kind of be able to know how to use them, especially vitaka and vichara, that sense of connecting and sustaining, but also the later factors, really to have a sense that we can cultivate that. We can actually bring some sweetness in just by noticing that aspect in our experience and inclining the mind towards it. Not out of grasping, not, you know, out of trying to push away unpleasant experiences, but really recognizing that a sense of well-being is actually a really important foundation for our practice. The mind and body need to feel some sense of kind of trust, some sense of real uh, ability to show up and be present for, for the, the deeper insights. So the piti sukha and then the akagata of the one-pointedness all help to support that. So we're learning to explore this terrain for ourselves. You know, we give the instructions, of course, and it's helpful to hear uh, these teachings, but it is the training of your own inner uh, understanding and your own capacity to work skillfully in your meditation that's the most important, we often have a tendency to look outward for confirmation, for, for direction. And of course, it's really helpful to have guidance, to have teachers to talk to and to get that kind of affirmation. But I can't tell you how many times people have come into interviews and described an experience. And the basic question is, is this normal? (laughs) Is it okay? You know, am I going in the right direction? What was that? Um, And basically, you know, most of the time I say, I don't know. You know, I can't know what your experience is. But you could come in and say virtually anything. You know, this and that and open and this and lights and... And like, yeah, sure. You know, the realm of meditation, it's it's an amazing realm. I mean, what we do here in working with the mind... It's amazing. I think I used the analogy of snorkeling on the, on the first night and how it's really like that. And it just gets more and more beautiful and more and more mysterious the deeper we go. So there's this whole range of experiences that we can come to have. And the more we're okay with that, with the ups and downs and the ins and outs and the highs and the lows. And again, a number of you have talked about these cycles of purity and purification that you've gone through. And really, I've, I've so much appreciated the, uh, the wisdom that you brought to those difficult times. You know, I really felt connected and calm and this beautiful experience happened. And then, you know, there's always the and then. 
and to see that that's actually okay, to actually have some sense of that. Again, as I said, meditation getting, getting more mainstream, there's a whole theme of cartoons I call the guru cartoons because the, the, the central figure in it is the guru. And you can see if you look at, you put all these cartoons together, there's a few attributes you have to have to be a guru. You have to sit on top of a mountaintop, you have to have a long beard, and you basically wear a loincloth. And, you know, that's, if you've got those going, then, you know, that's, that's the guru. And so there's all these kind of lines for it. But, you know, it's always someone going to ask the guru for advice. And one that I, I saw recently, it's always, you know, the seeker is literally climbing the mountaintop and peering over the edge, you know, to where the guru is sitting. And this guru is saying, looking at this person going, I'm sorry, I'm trying to attract a younger audience. So that's what happens when you look outside for affirmation. You know, we really have to be our own inner guru. I've talked to a few people about our inner Dharma coach. This commenting voice that you can sometimes have in meditation, and I think I said in an earlier talk, if you're actually thinking about your current experience, that's advanced practice. So, you know, don't judge yourself too much for that. And it's often helpful. It's our inner guru, our inner Dharma coach. Ultimately, of course, we want to simplify and quieten and let that go. But in the beginning, it can be really helpful to to let us know, all right, aiming at the breath, connecting with the breath, letting go, relax, you know, may the body relax, etc. So as we deepen in this practice, we do begin to trust our own understanding and our own training and our own capacity. Even if you've only had a taste of it this week, you've all had a sense of that possibility of training and deepening, and I hope you recognize that. We've talked a a few times about how important the practice of samatha, of jhana, is um, in the Buddhist tradition, and how if you read the suttas, the Buddha talks about jhana practice again and again, that the, even in the, the four, four Noble Truths, that central teaching, the Eightfold Path, the um, definition of sama samadhi, right samadhi, right concentration, is the four jhanas. And the Buddha again and again talks about this. Um, and those teachings, I think Andrea talked a little bit about it, that the Buddha, they were around at the Buddha's, in the Buddha's time. This, this way of training the mind was already accessible. But the Buddha went beyond that, but still saw it as a really important part of practice. And these teachings got developed, obviously, as people practiced more with them, and different texts were written about them. And an important one was called the Visuddhimagga, the Path of Purification. It was, it was a huge, thick manual that was written about the 5th century BC by uh, Acharya Buddhaghosa. And he did this huge compendium of, uh, it's a manual of practice, and a lot of it is about concentration. And he really expanded on the teachings on concentration. The 40 different concentration objects are in there, all the different ways to approach practice and types of practitioner, and uh, deepened the sense of concentration to these great degrees, you know, that the jhana they talked about was really uh, very deep and very powerful. And then... Um, it got, I, I don't know, and I'm not an expert in Buddhist history, but I wonder if, um, you know, because it became so refined and so deep that a lot of practitioners couldn't, couldn't achieve it, couldn't uh, reach that kind of jhana. And then about 10th, 11th century, 
Buddhism got wiped out in India um, and only survived in uh, neighboring countries, Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand. And even in those countries, over time, people lost touch with this practice of jhana to some degree. And Tanisaru Bhikkhu, who's a great scholar, he, he's actually edited a book called Buddhist Religions. He thinks there's such a variation in Buddhism that they shouldn't they should be considered different religions rather than just subsets within one religion. But he's done a lot of exploration um, of the development of Buddhism. And he said in the late 19th century, the Thai government actually did a survey to see if anyone was still attaining jhana or even nibbana and basically came to the conclusion that no one was. And so they kind of set up a system that diminished that practice because they didn't think it was accessible for people. And there was a whole restructuring that, had, uh, that happened of the Sangha around this time that was actually very sad, became very hierarchical, uh, very regimented, and a lot more scholarly. And they, they wanted all the monks to become um, teachers, educators, and they would you know, be the village everything, the village teacher and doctor and chaplain, etc., and a lot of monks at that time actually had to go into hiding just to preserve their practice, to preserve their connection to these deeper teachings. But out of those kind of uh, experiences, a number of teachers, very respected teachers, would uh, not think that jhana was important, would say things like, oh, people get too attached to the bliss of jhana, and they get um, waylaid by it. They, they don't stay with the true goal of practice, which is liberation. And so there was a whole lessening of interest in various places uh, in, the, in the Buddhist countries. And um, in the 1950s, monks like Mahasi Sayadaw, who was incredibly influential um, and very beneficially so, developed a style of practice and way of teaching that didn't include jhana, but he felt was more accessible for people, and especially for lay people. So we really have a huge amount of gratitude to people like Mahasi Sayadaw, who really created a style of practice that's very similar to what we teach here. We've softened it a little, but very similar, that was accessible to, for people. And, and they basically said, access concentration is enough. And that's a concentration prior to jhana. It's where the mind is very stable, the hindrances are, are basically at bay, um, but that's enough to have deep insight. And that was really the kind of form of practice that all of our teachers came into, Jack and Joseph and Sharon, the people that went to Asia, um, to Thailand and Burma. That was the kind of practice that they received. And in coming back to the West, also wanted to offer practice that was accessible to people, to the majority of people, and realized that Deepening in concentration, just as you've experienced this week, takes time. And I, I think I mentioned in my talk the other day, you know, our minds are pretty crazy. We can't just expect to sit down and get concentrated. Most of us need to get in our bodies, know and understand the body from a felt sense, not just an idea, and really begin this work of purification and understanding our minds before there's enough calm that we can turn to concentration. So there's been a, you know, I think in some ways a very wise uh, process that's happened here where they, that was how these retreats were taught for many years, all the years that I was doing practice. But in the last 10, 15 years or so, there's really been a renewed interest in 
the place of samadhi. And it's not like it was lost everywhere. I mean, people, masters like Paok Sayadaw and other great teachers have been teaching in this way all this time. We just haven't had that connection until, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. But once you open that door, you see there this rich tradition has conditioned, uh, continued. And for Paok Sayadaw, has this huge monastery in Burma, and at any one time he could have, the, it's full, and at full is 700 monks and nuns, laymen and women practicing in this very intense way, mainly, you know, oriented around jhana. So this, this rich tradition has continued, and we are part of a resurgent interest in deepening in this way. And even if, you know, we have, we, we don't, advertise this as a jhana retreat because you really have to get, this is a very short time to deepen in this kind of concentration. I think I've already said, some teachers say it takes at least a month. Some teachers say it takes even longer. It really depends on on our own individual uh, predilections and, and, and connection to the practice and the causes and conditions of our life in the retreat. So it's not, as I keep emphasizing, it's not about attaining jhana, even though, you know, that is a worthwhile aspiration. But it is a valuable training. We, we, we kind of start to see the map that's been put out for these thousands of years and to find our way on that map. And no, we can find our way on that map in a way that's helpful for us. Each one of us a different set of experiences, different 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 past meditation experience, different tendencies of mind, but all of us can find our way on this map and learn how to deepen and do this training that the Buddha said was so important. I think I even used this line in my other talk that the Buddha called himself a trainer of those who wish to be trained. You know, he used this, uh, you know, the gradual path, uh, the path of training. This is the, the path that we're on. This is how the Buddha described his use of concentration. Again, I think Andrea mentioned this a little. This uh, piece from the text is from the night of his enlightenment, but he used these same words, and especially the way the discourses got passed on, they kind of got codified. So this language is over and over again in the suttas. He said, when his mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, and unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, and steady, and attained to imperturbability. I directed it to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives, and then to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints, basically the ending of greed, aversion, delusion, uh, views and opinions, etc., sense of self. But I love this description of the mind that he turned to the nature of his experience, this concentrated mind, and these words malleable, wieldy, and steady. This is the kind of training that we're doing here to create a mind that has these qualities. To me, that's pretty amazing. I did not have a sense of my mind being malleable, wieldy, and steady before I started this practice. I mean, almost the opposite, unmalleable, unwieldy, and unsteady felt more like what it was like. But malleable, that the mind is actually um, able to be shaped, that with this clarity of intention, this repetition, this, this persistence of practice, we can direct the nature of the mind. 
that we don't have to be a victim of our minds. And because of this, I said this uh, in the late night the other night, we have to be careful what we put in the concentrated mind. It's very suggestible. Um, you, you can know if you know, you've got a song stuck in your head or just a certain thought going around. So we need to take care in this way. But wieldy, this means responsive, easy to handle. And uh, at the mind is an ally. I mean, to me, that's just amazing to think that my mind could become my ally instead of this sort of wild beast I was trying to always, you know, contain and corral and try to get back on the straight and narrow kind of thing. That the mind can actually have these qualities. And of course, steady. The mind can pay attention. That the mind can keep having the sense of showing up and meeting experience over and over again. So I I often invoke these words because they're so meaningful for me. Malleable, wieldy, and steady imperturbable. This is, this is the direction. And in the Buddha's time, these kind of practices were just basically a given. You know, people knew about them, and there's not a lot of detailed uh, description of actually how to do the practice in the suttas, because they just assumed that everyone knew. Um, but it's there throughout the text, this emphasis. At the same time, the Buddha also spoke about a variety of practices and how people with different temperaments um, would gravitate more to one kind of practice or the other. There's this uh, great sutta in the text where the Buddha is in Rajgir and Vulture's Peak, one of the places I went on the pilgrimage, so I have a real sense of the Buddha being there and teaching, and he said, see all my great disciples, there's Sariputta and Anuruddha and Mahakashapa and Upali and Ananda. He said, you know, one is perfected in wisdom and one in concentration and one in psychic powers and one in the discipline and one in study. And all of the students were gravitating. You got a sense of this aliveness of the time and that all these, you know, brilliant people were there practicing and studying, but all with slightly different proclivities and interests. So it's, again, not as though there's just one right way. We don't all have to go through this same path. But this capacity for concentration is, is, is just so helpful for us as Westerners. And again, in, in that time, certainly, it was a kind of given. You probably know in the time of the Buddha, they, didn't, they, they had writing, but they didn't tend to write things down because it was just written on papyrus, kind of a a paper, I mean, a, out of reeds or something, and it didn't last very long. It was actually more reliable to commit things to memory because group memory is actually pretty reliable because if one person forgets, another person remembers. So people would remember huge swaths of the teachings and be given different parts of the teachings. You know, you take care of these volumes and you take care of these volumes and you these volumes and then they'd get together regularly and chant them all together. I mean, chant literally volumes of these discourses. Chant the whole vinaya, you know, which is a huge, you know, 227 rules with all of the sort of sub-clauses and uh, codes of conduct, you, they would chant and remember this. This is uh, There are people who literally remembered the whole thing, the whole tripitaka, as we call it. In the, we have a copy in the teacher's room. It's 26 volumes in English, 
They could chant the whole thing from memory. And they do that to this day, in, especially in Burma, but even in Thailand, I think. There's this just facility for memorizing things, that steadiness of mind that just holds it. That's quite amazing. I've actually had the privilege of being with Bhikkhu Bodhi a number of times, and he's our preeminent translator of these texts into English, taking this ancient language and making a very readable English from it. And when you ask him a question about uh, suttas and teachings, he'll sort of go, oh, right, that's uh, Majima 121, and I think it's paragraph 6. And you can see he's almost picturing And then he said, and it says this, and the Pali is this, and this is how I translated it. He's, you know, it's amazing what the mind is uh, capable of. And all of these suttas that we're the beneficiary of, not all of them, but many of them begin with, thus have I heard. And when you see that in a sutta, what that's meaning is that it's Ananda telling who'd remembered it. And Ananda, this was a Buddha's main disciple, main uh, attendant for 25 years of his life. And he heard every teaching of the Buddha. He actually made this agreement with the Buddha when he said he would become his attendant. He said two things. I don't want special treatment because I'm so close to you. But secondly, if you go and teach anywhere else, when you come back, you have to tell me that teaching. If you t- and I'm not there. You have to tell me that teaching. So Ananda apparently retained, it was known as the retainer of all of these teachings, so he would recite them. So when the Buddha died, all of the arhants of the time, the enlightened beings, got together and said, we need to really codify these teachings. You know, Anand has been remembering that we need to make sure that we're going to retain them. So we're going to have this council of all of the enlightened people. But unfortunately, Ananda, even though he had heard all of these teachings, never got fully enlightened. And so he wasn't going to be able to come to the Arhant's council and share the teachings with everyone, you know, recite them for them. So it was a huge dilemma. They, and Mahakasapa, who was a little severe, said, Ananda, you know, unless you be an Arhant, you can't come. So Ananda's like, so he starts practicing really intensively. And, you know, day, you know it's like, the deadline, the, the council's coming up and Ananda's practicing away, sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And then the council is the next day and he hasn't gotten enlightened. And uh, the, the story goes, dawn is about to break, you know, the council happening that day. And Ananda just gives up. He said, I have tried my hardest, he, you know, perseverance, effort, striving. Can you imagine the pressure on poor Ananda? And so the story goes, he gives up. He finally says, I can't do this. It's not happening. So he goes to his bed, and as his feet rise off the floor, but before his head touches the pillow, in that moment of release, relaxing, he gets fully enlightened. So what does that tell you about the place of striving and the place of relaxation? That moment as, before his, as his feet came off the floor, before his head touched the pillow, and then the next day he just walked into the council and they all made a place for Ananda. They could tell that that shift had happened. So I thought I wanted to share that teaching because it's such a, you know, here's someone who'd been with the Buddha for 25 years, heard every teaching he'd ever given, and not attained the full awakening. And through striving, didn't get there, but through relaxation, did. 
So as we go home, as I said, we can't hold on to what we've uh, learned here. I mean, what we've, uh, the actual experiences. You've probably even seen this in the retreat, you know, the great sitting of yesterday. Where is it? They say, back with the dinosaurs. It's as gone as, you know, the pyramids and whatever. Uh, There's no way you can hold on to that. But we can have a sense of the qualities that we've developed and how we develop them. And perhaps you've also had a little taste or even just heard of qualities that you know you would like to develop, that you need to develop more. All of us have a long list of those. And so having some sense of both what we have developed and what we can develop, what would be helpful to develop, really gives us a sense of direction in practice. Often we just sit to sit, and that's great, sit to sit. But to have some sense of cultivation, this is a path of purification. This is a path that actually continues to deepen. And to know, again, not with striving, not, you know, I'm not good enough now, I've got to go get this, but that the heart really opens to this possibility, feels enlivened, feels buoyant at the sense that this is possible for me, that I can train in this way, that I can experience here and now in this lifetime more joy or more peace or happiness. And again, you've all had a taste of this. In the interviews, just saying, I know sometimes that people have said, I'm actually more reactive on this retreat because I'm so sensitive and quiet when a noise happens. But that's just a, a certain kind of sensitivity or reactivity. You've also talked about just a stability of mind as things change or you're out in nature or even going into the dining room. And as challenging as that can be, finding a sense of connection or metta or calmness as all of that goes on. All of you have mentioned that. And I've just seen, you know, especially in the interviews today, just this, this brightness in people, a kind of calmness, a kind of stability, and really a softness or a kindness that wasn't so evident in the early days of the retreat. And the main kindness that I see is a kindness towards yourself. Hopefully a greater degree of self-acceptance, of knowing your mind, knowing it can be trained and it, it can always deepen, but really trusting your capacity to do that. This is what we can really start to trust in this practice. And so we have a, 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 a big a big, a big picture of this practice, you know, it is about turning to insight and, lib- and liberation, but it's also very much for our well-being here and now. You know, the practice is its own reward. As we learn how to work in this way skillfully with the mind, we can feel the benefit of that right here and right now. We don't have to wait until, you know, I'm on the jhana mountain and I want to get to the top of that mountain. That, that's not so helpful. But to really feel um, the benefit here and now and to know we can continue to deepen that path and that process. The concentration when you go home will not be the same as here on the retreat. I've said to some people today, you know, do you want the bad news about continuing practice And this is just what someone said to me. I don't know if it's true, but it's basically four hours a day 
to deepen, two hours a day of practice to maintain. You know, I don't know whether that's true. I actually don't think it is. I think it, you know, there's a whole range within that. And, you know, you can't take Spirit Rock with you. Someone said today, can't I take Spirit Rock with you? Well, I don't really think you'd want to. It's very big and unwieldy. Talk about not wieldy. You know, Spirit Rock, you can't take it with you. But you can uh, have a sense of what it's like to train in this way in your daily practice. Again, not looking to get hugely concentrated, but seeing that there is this inclining of the mind and that these grooves are getting set. We are, I think, somehow modifying our neural pathways and we can use our practice day to day to find a deeper sense of calm, to really be present in the body and to have this sense of uh, connection. And how, you know, to do that without rejecting our current experience, without diminishing, you know, where we are and being judgmental. It's just, there's always a way to connect, to incline, and to, to deepen. And to see this is the definition, or this is the direction this path goes. We've talked about what it's like to experience a mind where the hindrances aren't so active. And again, maybe you've had a moment of that. It's said that with concentration practice, the hindrances don't get uprooted, but they're kept temporarily at bay. And again, for the, sometimes the first time we have that direct experience, it's a little surprising. It's like, wow, you know, where are my old friends? You know, greed, aversion, and delusion, and the sleepiness and rest, they're not here. This is a little taste of the enlightened mind. So we really need to recognize this potential that we have, that, that we can have that experience, and that this can happen also in daily life. You know, the hindrances aren't just things we experience on retreat, right? You have greed, aversion, you have sleepiness and restlessness, you have doubt in your daily life. How to work skillfully with those. Use the techniques that you've learned here on the retreat to actually engage with that. So again, you're not just the victim of these mind states, but you have a relationship with them that's skillful, that recognizes them, and recognize them as hindrances, as suffering, that there is actually a possibility. So we continue to engage with the practice. We don't have, uh, you know, as I said, high expectations that we'll, you know, get into jhana or whatever, and again, that may happen, but... We work, we, we are with what we are, but we have this sense that we know what we're doing in this terrain. We know the mind. We're getting to understand the mind. And it all comes back to intention. What are we doing this for? What is our purpose? Sylvia Borstein says about anything she undertakes, to what end? You know, and it's not that we have to keep, you know, examining what we're doing in that way, but to take stock every now and then. You know, what is my deepest aspiration for myself? What is my heart's wish for myself? And then how do I go about supporting that? How do I go about deepening that? And we'll talk more about those different uh, possibilities tomorrow morning. But just to have a sense that that's the seed, that's the necessary seed out of which everything else 
flowers, to really get in touch with what for you is the highest happiness? What would that look like? How do you nourish that intention or aspiration? What will support that? What kind of qualities of mind or heart do you need to develop or pay attention to? What rigidities of mind do you need to work with and let go of? What habits are not supportive of that? Even what relationship, what circumstances are supportive or not supportive? So we look at our lives and we, we, we have this kind of sense of clarifying our intention. And really, from this perspective of the Buddha's path of practice, he talked about the highest happiness. He talked about the possibility of deep freedom, lasting freedom, not the freedom of, I mean, not the happiness of getting certain sense pleasures and experiences, but actually an abiding in freedom that's possible. This is what he talked about. But to do that, we have to recognize where the work needs to happen, where we need to let go, and what we need to cultivate. And just that's what we do again and again and again. Feeding and starving, cultivating and letting go. This is our practice. I want to finish with an excerpt from, um, it's a longer poem, you could call it Song of Liberation from Patru Rinpoche. He was a great Tibetan uh, meditation master in the 1800s, very well respected um, in the Nyingma lineage, Dzogchen master. And this is an edit that Joseph Goldstein did. He he kindly shared it with with me. So it's just an excerpt, um, and it's talking about Patrol's own practice. It's called Advice from Me to Myself. So it's something actually, it's interesting for us to write sometimes. You know, if we were going to give ourselves practice advice, what would you say to yourself? But here's what Patrol said to himself, and he makes some references in here to, to cymbals and drums, because if you know anything about Tibetan practice, they have those drums in their ceremonies and meditation and some, you know, bells that ring and cymbals, uh, drums that drum, all part of their practice. This is what Patrol said to himself. Listen up, old bad karma Patrol, you dweller in distraction. And he's a very revered meditation master, so just, this is the nature of the mind, you dweller in distraction. For ages now, you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around about carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste of time. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool for once. Just sit tight. You beat your little Damaru drum, ting-ting, and your audience thinks it's charming to hear, but you're reciting, and you're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. You're making your little symbols go cling-cling without keeping the ultimate purpose in mind. 
all of this Dhamma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let everything go. That's really what I want to say. If you let everything go, everything, everything, that's the real point. So advice from Patro Rinpoche, this distract, you dwell in distraction. No, the hundred projects that are never finished. What's our real aspiration for ourselves? What do we really want? What do we have to give up? What do we have to let go of to truly know the kind of liberation, the kind of peace that the Buddha talked about? So, in some ways it's kind of simple. He just says, give it up. But it's not easy, is it? It's hard. So we are right where we are with kindness and compassion, but knowing that this path goes in one direction only. And there's really no turning back, is there? As someone says, you can't unhear the bell that's been rung. This is the direction we're going in. The hundred plans, the hundred projects, the distractions. What's important for us in our lives? and to have a sense of how we develop and continue that. So let's just sit for a moment and quiet. Thank you for your attention. Got about 35 minutes for walking, get some fresh air, come back perhaps for the late night chanting, which... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.